0: We come now to open up the Word of God, and the passage that we're going to be looking at is 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, and our subject matter is women and teaching. But before we get into this passage, I want to uh, speak to why we're continuing to study Paul's first letter to Timothy. I want to be clear on why we are continuing into this study. We could be doing, as some other churches are doing, but they're going topical. Um, They're developing a series of topics to address this pandemic. Now, there's nothing wrong in doing that. There's nothing wrong in going that direction. Uh, It could be a great time for some of these churches to actually delve into God's sovereignty, uh, to delve into his providence. But it's also not wrong to stay with our current series, uh, to keep opening up the word of God uh, in this manner, to stay focused on Paul's message to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. The reason is this crisis is temporary, but what the church needs goes beyond this crisis. The church always needs training and instruction how to be the church for both now and the future. And we need to remember that there is a design for the church, a very specific design for the church that Christ has given to his apostles. And specifically, we find this in the apostle Paul, He points this out in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, when he says to Timothy, I am writing these things to you so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church to the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the design of Christ for the church is why Paul writes what he writes. So whether we're in a crisis or not, the people of God must know how to be the people of God. They need to know how to conduct themselves as the pillar and foundation of the truth. And, of course, that truth that Paul mentions is ultimately centered upon the gospel, the saving message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this section today, we continue with Paul's remarks about women, women in the church. Uh, here, Paul moves beyond the topics of prayer and uh, outward adornment and good works to the question of women and teaching within the life of the church. Now, for the sake of context, to appreciate what Paul is doing here, we need to think about the next chapter, chapter 3. There, Paul is going to set forth the qualifications for the offices of elder and deacon. He's going to talk about specifically, first of all, elders, those who are the overseers of the church. So what Paul says here is really a prelude and introduction into what Paul is going to say in chapter 3. So let me read this passage for you. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith, and love and holiness with self-control. Let me pray. As we pray regularly during our worship service, as we come to the time of the message and the exposition of your word, O Holy Father, we're asking for your Holy Spirit, for your Spirit himself to be the one who would teach us and guide us and lead us and help us to understand all the things that Scripture says. For we know that Scripture was given to us by inspiration by you breathing out this word. We know the scripture is given to us for uh, correction, reproof, uh, doctrine, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God and really all of us as believers may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So teach us, equip us today, we pray, O Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we look at this passage, is there any question but that Paul is restricting women from something that men are allowed to do. Now, the restriction is obvious, uh, but that is why there's discussion, and that's why there's debate over the meaning of the passage. What is this restriction that Paul places upon women in relationship to teaching? And that's what we're going to delve into both this week and next week. And we're going to organize and outline what Paul has to say in these verses in this way. Three basic points. We can begin by looking at the concept of restriction and being clear what it isn't, what isn't being restricted. And secondly, we can go on to define the nature of the restriction more clearly. What is its essential nature? What is restricted? What is the essential nature of this restriction upon teaching? And then thirdly, we can look at what Paul gives us biblical reasons for this restriction being in place. Now, this third point, We're going to reserve until next week. We're not going to speak to it until then. So we're going to be looking at these essentially verses 11 and 12. But here's my objective. Um, Though we can't say everything about this topic, we can't possibly do that. My hope is that we will see the essential truth that the Scripture is giving us so that we can be clearly embracing Christ's vision, Christ's design, Christ's will for his church, in order that we can know how we're supposed to conduct ourselves as the pillar and foundation of the truth. So we begin at this point. What is not restricted? Or another way of putting it, what is this passage not teaching? What is this passage not about? Well, first of all, whatever the restriction happens to be, which we're going to get to, but whatever it happens to be, it's not any kind of restriction or reduction in the actual value of women. This is because from the doctrine of creation on, the scriptures have always taught that women are created equal to men, being created in the image of God. So it's one of the earliest truths we find in the Bible, Genesis chapter one, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in the presence of God, men and women are morally and spiritually equal. And in regards to God's plans for the human race, his plans for the world, men and women are equally necessary, equally valuable. So we can say that in the most essential dimensions of what it means to be a human being, the most essential dimensions of human equality, men and women are totally equal. This should be taken as a biblical given. It shouldn't be questioned ever. And the New Testament presents the same testimony. That is to say, in the context of redemption, redemption takes us back to what we see in creation. Paul says this in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Peter echoes the same kind of thought applied to a different situation, directly husbands and wives. So he says, 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to women as the weaker vessel, since they are fellow heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, first, the New Testament teaches that Salvation in Christ applies equally to Jews, Greeks, slaves, free men and women. The gospel brings all people back to their essential oneness and value before God as his image bearers, all equal before the cross of Christ. And likewise, all salvation benefits belong to men and women. So the New Testament goes on to say that women are fellow heirs of the grace of life, not subordinate heirs not secondary heirs, fellow heirs of the grace of life. So the restriction that's spoken of here about teaching does not in any sense intend to or actually have the effect of reducing or lessening what the Bible teaches about the essential quality of men and women. That's the first thing we need to understand. But secondly, it is certainly not a restriction that says, Women can never teach. Uh, To the contrary, women are certainly allowed to teach in those ways of teach. In fact, let me put it this way. Women are allowed to teach in most kinds of teaching. Most of the forms of teaching women are allowed to do. The restriction here, as Paul is going to explain, is a restriction that's connected to authority. That's the point of verse 12. But the fact of the matter is most kinds of teaching do not have this kind of authority. In other words, teaching in general is not authoritative in the sense that bears Paul's restriction. So let me give you six or so examples of permissible teachings that don't violate the restriction thing that Paul says in verse 12. And this might be helpful for you to understand this, to see it this way. First of all, women can teach by their godly example. Now, that's implicit in what Paul was saying earlier about the adornment of women, the good works of women. Uh, They are to teach what godliness is by actually their good example. Uh, In fact, we all would teach others that way, by a good example. Secondly, women can share the truth of the gospel with a man without violating the restriction that Paul is putting into place here. Uh, she can show another person, she can show a man, the way of salvation. Uh, she can even do apologetics and defend the truth of the faith and still not be teaching in an authoritative manner. First Peter 3.15 uh, puts it this way. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's no restriction on women sharing and defending their faith. Thirdly, we we see in Scripture that women can can actually, by an example we find in the book of Acts, team up with their husbands to disciple a younger, less spiritually mature believer. Uh, This shows up in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, and it's significant that it happens in the city of Ephesus. Let me read Acts eighteen twenty six. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You have husband and wife, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and they hear this man uh, speaking by the name of Apollos, and he's not fully discipled in the ways of Christ. And so they commit themselves to discipling him. They take him aside, and together they're explaining to him the way of God more accurately. Or they teamed up and discipled uh, Apollos together. Another way that uh, women can teach that's perfectly appropriate is they can teach men in the context of personal uh, conversations about spiritual things. Uh, Imagine or think about it this way. Uh, it's, it's incidental kind of teaching. It's not uh, intended in the sense of the woman is setting herself up to teach this fellow brother. But it's, it's the kind of situation where uh, what happens is conversations are going on. Uh, Christian men and women uh, together, they're having fellowship within the church. Uh, and in these conversations, there's not any intention for... A woman to exercise any authority, per se, over a man, but they're talking together. And then a woman says something that is illuminating spiritually. It opens up doctrinal truth perhaps the man didn't understand. It's not a problem. If the the man learns something from it, it's not a problem. There's no intentionality of the woman to exercise any kind of overt authority over the man. And we see this happening all the time in in, in adult Sunday school classes, education classes, uh, maybe in home Bible studies. Uh, God has gifted women with uh, good spiritual insights. Those who listen here, they learn something from it. But that is not a violation of the kind of issue that the Apostle Paul is concerned about. Further, women can give solicited advice to men. Uh, if a Christian man asks his Christian sister for advice, uh, advice scripturally based, she's not assuming any particular authority over him when she gives him the advice. In fact, The whole dynamic of seeking advice from one person to another always leaves the responsibility of the person who seeks the advice to to decide and determine if, if that's something he wants to follow. If a man follows a godly woman's advice, it's still upon him, totally, whether that advice is sound or not, whether he should follow or not. It's not like the woman is giving advice and then adding to it some authoritative declaration that, and this you must do, uh, that would violate the Apostle Paul's statement. But the sharing of advice uh, from a godly Christian woman to a godly Christian man uh, is, in, is in no way a violation of what Paul says here. Let me give it a last example. Women can share their testimony, for instance, of, the, of their life in Christ in a, in a mixed audience. Women can tell about their experience of God's grace Um, what the Bible, what Bible verses have meant to them, what lessons God has taught them. Any number of times in churches, we've had women missionaries who've come and shared in this way. They can do all of that kind of sharing up to a particular point and a particular point that they must not and ought not to cross. And that's the point that I want to explain as we look at the restriction that Paul's laid down. But let me sum up here. Women in the church can actually teach in most of the ways that teaching takes place in life and within the body of the church. The restriction, as we're going to see, is actually a restriction concerning the exercise of authority, the kind of authority that is invested in the leadership of the church, specifically in the leadership of those who are called and ordained to be elders. So we come to the second point. Looking at the restriction, and I want us to be as clear as we can on what it is and what it means. So we come to verse 12. Paul lays down the rule I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now it's followed by verse, or it's preceded by verse 11, which adds some context, which also supports then the rule Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, I want to stop here. And I want us to note, the restriction involves two functions that are joined together, teaching and the exercise of authority. Now, it's no mistake to connect these twin functions to the twin functions of the overseers and elders that are described in the next chapter. Those men specifically called and ordained to be the shepherds. The teachers of the flock, where shepherding and teaching is involved in what it means to actually feed the flock spiritually, as well as the calling to rule over and to govern the church spiritually from the word of God. Elders are specifically ordained to this. They're specifically commanded to keep watch over the flock. They are specifically given the authority from Christ to do this within the body of Christ. So the restriction that Paul gives in chapter 2 automatically is going to apply to the qualifications and the uh, who can be ordained that we find in chapter 3. Automatically, uh, elders and overseers of the church, uh, that office is restricted to men only. Women cannot be elders within the church for this reason. Women are not to teach with the authority that elders are required to exercise when they teach and shepherd and guide and govern the church. Now, of course, there has been uh, a great deal of pushback upon that. Uh, The claim against this restriction that we read here can be stated this way. The Apostle Paul is imposing a temporary and local restriction only. It is a conditional restriction. The women of Ephesus were not spiritually ready. They were not scripturally qualified. They were not spiritually mature enough to assume the leadership roles that Paul describes in the next chapter. It wasn't wise for them to be teachers or elders or shepherds. They were not ready for this mantle of responsibility. So what Paul is doing here is a matter of prudence and wisdom. Uh, it's a matter of prudence and wisdom for the church at Ephesus at this time. So the main line of argument uh, essentially says that the Ephesian church, the women in the Ephesian church were undereducated, undertrained, lacking in spiritual maturity. That's why Paul places this local and temporary restriction upon women teaching. However, should the problem be solved, if women received the training they needed, if they showed the spiritual maturity that they needed, then the restriction would, be, restriction would be lifted, it would no longer apply, and women could become elders and pastors and shepherds of the church. And the idea is that hypothetically this was something done at, at uh, Ephesus and probably Corinth, but not done everywhere, although there's no evidence of that. Now, let me tell you why these reasons and in this interpretation fail to be compelling. Think about Paul's ministry. We we know from the book of Acts that Paul spent three years at the church at Ephesus, three years in which he taught the whole counsel of God, and he taught the whole counsel of God from house to house. Paul teaching intensively from house to house for three years so that he could claim that there was, in fact, uh, no reason at all for people not to be fully spiritually equipped. We see these convictions and statements in Acts chapter 20. Now, here's the point. If such intensive intensive apostolic training house to house by the Apostle Paul, if that could not produce spiritually trained, and spiritually mature women in the church at Ephesus than what possibly could? If the Apostle Paul's ministry couldn't bring about the spiritual dynamic of women being able and capable uh, to lead the church, then, then there's no hope for anyone else attempting to do the same thing. It's very difficult to believe, therefore, that after the Apostle Paul's intensive ministry during this time, it's very difficult to believe that there were no women of quality, that there were no women who were spiritually or scripturally equipped to function as as elders, if that's what should be the case. Uh, Further, notice that what Paul does here is he puts all women into the same category. All women are under the category of restriction. All women fall under this not allowed to teach or to exercise authority over a man. But that only makes sense if every woman, without exception, happened to be spiritually immature and and scripturally untrained. So why would Paul exclude a whole class of women when most certainly not all of the women or spiritually immature, or scripturally untrained. Why would Paul exclude all of the women when we already have the example of Priscilla as a woman fully capable to work with her husband Aquila to train a younger spiritual man? You see, it makes far more sense if Paul were to have restricted simply the subclass of women, the unqualified women, the immature And untrained women, it doesn't make sense that Paul would restrict all women if the primary issue was some kind of lack of spiritual and scriptural maturity among the women. And of course, what we ought to recognize is how Paul actually handled scriptural immaturity, how he handled spiritual immaturity. Uh, The parallel here would be how Paul treated men. Paul's approach toward the spiritually immature and the scripturally untrained men who were uh, afflicting uh, the church at Ephesus. Paul tells Timothy in both of his letters, these men shouldn't be teaching at all. So if Paul's policy of church leadership, teaching and exercising authority in the church, is an issue of being qualified or not being qualified based upon scriptural scriptural, um, scriptural training, spiritual maturity, It would seem terribly, terribly wrong to exclude qualified women by a universal exclusion. Now, what this all means, then, is clearly the restriction Paul states here isn't local. It's not temporary. It's really an imagined situation as opposed to an actual situation of what's going on at Ephesus. In contrast, What's the historical perspective? What's the perspective of the church? The church has held for 19 and a half centuries before this last century of controversy. It's this. Paul's restriction isn't temporary and it's not local. It's a permanent and universal restriction. It's a matter of principle for how the church is supposed to conduct its ministry. Now, that leads into discussing what is the very nature of this. Restriction. What is it? What is teaching with authority all about? Well, in the first place, uh, teaching is the communication of information so that an audience would learn. What moves teaching generally into the category of authoritative teaching? That is, what makes teaching authoritative? Now, the distinction is, is, is Easy to understand, but let me illustrate it with our present crisis. Uh, let's suppose we're in the first week of March. A husband and wife are having a conversation, and the wife says, based on some of the reading that she's done, uh, we need to practice this thing called social distancing. Because if we stay away from people, we can't catch what they might have. I think this is good information. I think we ought to practice this. Then Friday the 13th comes. California's governor gives the citizens that same information and then says, unless you're going to the groceries, unless you're going to the doctor or the pharmacy or to a job that we have deemed essential, you are to stay at home and practice social distancing. Now, it doesn't matter what you may think about the government's edicts and commands and regulations and restrictions at this time. What's clear, though, is that a wife sharing that same information with her husband doesn't have the same authority, if any authority at all, compared to the governor's statement. His statement does have authority. Scripture says so, Romans 13, 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The point is this. What is intrinsic and central to the concept of authority, is the required response of submission. Let me add another helpful way of looking at this. Uh, in the matter of of teaching, we most often are using indicative speech. That is to say, we're we're giving statements of facts. We're conveying content. We're giving out information. We're explaining things. But a football coach has to teach way beyond the indicative. He has to teach with authority because he has to get his players to do what he says. And they have to obey his instructions. They must submit to him and what he says. That is why a football coach is going to give both instructions and commands. A coach is an authoritative teacher. It's his job to do more, far more than impart information. He has to command his players to do certain things. And if they don't submit to his commands, they won't play and they won't remain on the team. He can't be a coach without the authority to impose certain behavior on his players. Take away his authority, he's no longer a coach. Now he's looking for a job as a sports analyst with ESPN. The point is this. Authoritative teaching is that which joins together the indicative and the imperative, explaining and commanding. Teaching with authority always has this twin connection. There is the function to instruct conjoined with a function to command. Authoritative teaching is the right to give commands, and that's what defines authoritative teaching and sets it apart from all other kinds of teaching. So biblically, this means not only instruction and ex- explanation and declaration of what the scripture says, but it's telling people to submit to and to obey the teachings of scripture. Now, this authority to speak with both the indicative and the imperative to instruct but also to admonish and to exhort the church body as a whole that authority has been placed by christ in the ones ordained to have this oversight authority over the church hebrews 13:7 reminds us obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls As those who will give an account. As an apostle, Paul had this authority to command Timothy. He charged Timothy. He commanded Timothy to wage the good warfare. And Timothy was given this authority over the church body. Paul tells Timothy in chapter four, command and teach these things. Teach all the doctrines necessary for how the church was to conduct itself as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, next Sunday, we will go into further reasons why Paul makes this restriction, connected to both creation and to the fall. But where are we so far? We return to what we said at the beginning of this message. Christ gave to the apostle Paul, the calling and responsibility to guide and direct the church According to what Christ had revealed to him, chapter 315, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The truth with which the truth, which the church is to support by its conduct and behavior and teaching is centralized in the truth of the gospel. That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Christ came because God the Father sent him. Because God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the truth is this. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is why the church prays for the world. This is why Christian men are to find unity together in praying together. This is why Christian women, likewise, as they come together to serve and to pray, they're to adorn themselves with godliness and with good works. This is why authoritative teaching is restricted to the elders of the church, all working together to fulfill God's design that the church God's own household in this world will be living for the truth of the gospel. We do all of this because Christ is Lord. Christ has cared for us. Christ has loved us. Christ has told us how to conduct ourselves within the church, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Amen.